X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, October 27th. A reminder, it is the fall pledge drive. This would be a wonderful time if you support The Local to go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button. And go ahead and shout out The Local. This is a time of need in our community. At X-Ray, we're not shrinking in this time of need. We've been working harder than ever, 168 hours a week. By the way, 168 hours is what happens when you multiply seven by 24. By giving just 15 bucks a month, you can help us champion independent media, bring you content that reflects the issues you care about, help grow and build a more sustainable organization worthy of our city. You can become a member at 15 bucks a month by calling the number, the magic number is 503-233-X-RAY. 503-233-9729 or going online at xray.fm slash donate. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, October 27, 1941, 20,000 bombs arrived for storage in Umatilla County, Oregon. Umatilla County Ordnance stored and supplied munitions, including chemical weapons, for the Army until 1990. Cleanup to clear out the last of those munitions per environmental safety regulations was completed in 2012. As I may have said before, back in the very early 1970s, a young district attorney of Umatilla County named R.P. Joe Smith opposed the storage of chemical weapons at that weapons depot. They often pronounced it at the depot. And a young man named Jefferson Smith, that was me, heard about that story when he was a cattle hand in Umatilla County after high school. A thousand and one storage bunkers can still be seen off I-84 near exit 179. Today, back in the day, October 27, 1994, the U.S. prison population exceeded one million people for the first time. The figure provided by the U.S. Justice Department that day did not account for local jails that were estimated to hold an additional half a million people. And at the end of 2016, the Prison Policy Initiative estimated that about 2.3 million people were incarcerated, out of a population of about 324 million. The United States represents between 4 and 5 percent of the world's population, but it houses around 22 to 25 percent of the world's prisoners. We'll start today with your Quick 6 News headlines, and former Clatsop County DA Josh Marquis will join to talk about statewide Measure 110. We'll also have an interview with Debbie Kay, president of the League of Women Voters. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. A county judge has challenged the big loan Ted Wheeler gave to his own campaign. Campaign finance regulations changed in Portland this May. It's been a problem for Ted Wheeler's campaign. On September 18th, after a slow fundraising summer, Wheeler donated $150,000 to his campaign. He called it a loan. But in 2018, voters voted to limit the amount that candidates can give to their campaigns to only five grand. So the mayor's challenger filed a complaint against the campaign. And that complaint was ignored by the city auditor. But a county judge has urged the city auditor to give the complaint another look and enforce the law. The city auditor agreed. Ted Wheeler's campaign has declined to comment. Sarah Anarone released a statement praising the judge's decision. Wheeler's raised about $500,000 this year, including that $150,000 he gave himself. He has about $108,000 on hand. Iannarone has been using public matching funds. She's raised $775,000. She has about $121,000 left. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 339, two confirmed cases, 42,436 total. Now two more deaths, bringing us 655. Most of those cases in the metro area, 90 in Multnomah, 56 in Washington, 41 in Clackamas County. Washington State has had a total of 102,913 cases and 2,296 total deaths. And meanwhile, Amazon, Seattle's biggest employer, has extended its work-from-home order for another six months. 
spells bad news for the small businesses in downtown Seattle that rely on Amazon workers to be their customer base, but might be good news for people who otherwise might get sick. The workforce of one company might not sound like a lot, but Amazon has over 55,000 corporate and tech employees in Seattle and Bellevue. Washington has seen a surge in COVID cases recently, just like Oregon, and 130 downtown Seattle businesses have already been forced to close since the pandemic began. And with no new relief from Congress, more small Seattle businesses could be in trouble. A judge has ruled that more Oregonians can join the lawsuit over unemployment benefits. Thousands of Oregonians lost their jobs, had hours cut due to the pandemic, and that created a huge demand for unemployment benefits. But for so many people, it's taken weeks or even months to be able to process those requests. So this summer, a group of people filed a lawsuit in court asking the judge to compel the Oregon Employment Department to take specific actions to cure those delays and get people their benefits. And after a hearing, Multnomah County Circuit Judge Judith Matarazzo allowed the lawsuit to cover all Oregonians who have been partially or fully unemployed since March, applied for and tried to apply for benefits, and have waited or been waiting for more than four weeks to get those benefits or to be denied benefits. And that means if you fall into that group, by the way, that's called a class. The remedy the court decides could apply to you as well. The Hawthorne Theater is up for auction. Hawthorne Theater CEO Gordon Cross says he doesn't expect the building's sale to affect the music venue. The all-ages club is currently closed like other music venues in the city, so I guess it's going to stay closed. But Hawthorne Theater has had a rough year for reasons besides the pandemic. In March, club owner and concert promoter Mike Thrasher died at only age 48. Rest in peace. The building's over a century old. It was once a Masonic temple. Officially became a music venue in 2005. Bidding will begin at $1.1 million. By the way, back in 2016, the building was bought by a California developer for $3 million. The Hawthorne Theater maintained its lease through that transition. They expect they might be able to keep it through the next one as well. And if it sold for $3 million in 2016 and the bidding is starting at $1.1 million now, how come the price cut ain't just the pandemic? I'm making a guess. This is not reporting. I'm making a guess. Looking at the brick building, I'm guessing it's unreinforced masonry, and they think it might be expensive to make it reinforced masonry. You know, because of earthquakes. The Portland Greyhound Station is going to become a winter homeless shelter. I've spent time in the Portland Greyhound Station. When I worked as a Cadillac in Umatilla County, it's how I got back and forth. I didn't go that many times back and forth because I was mostly forth. But when I would come back, it would be by way of a Greyhound. I'd go to the Greyhound Station. Let us be clear. It has not been required to own a home to visit that Greyhound Station. But now the Portland Greyhound Station will become one of three new winter warming shelters. That's going to make a total of 275 new beds. The others, Charles Jordan Community Center in North Portland and Mount Scott Community Center in Southeast. The shelters will be open 24-7 through to March. Unlike in past years, the shelters will also offer three meals a day, showers, and laundry. The Greyhound Shelter in Old Town has been empty since September of 2019. The owners, an Indianapolis-based real estate company, are looking to eventually sell that building. I'm sad you can't get Greyhound anymore. The bus was a great way to travel. It was. It was like the cheap way to travel. Mayor Wheeler has suggested that longer term, the city might be interested in buying the facility and developing the site. Could be a great plot of land. It's right there off the bridge, right connected to downtown. One of the big sets of races on the ballot across the country and here in Oregon, by the way, are state legislative races. State legislatures, of course, very involved in redistricting. In fact, the House and the Senate are the bodies that draw the lines in Oregon if they can agree and not have to send it over to the Secretary of State. Democrats have a 38 to 22 advantage in the House that gives them a supermajority of three-fifths able to pass new revenue. 
and likewise an 18 to 12 majority in the state Senate, also three-fifths enough to pass new revenue, but not a two-thirds majority that would allow a quorum vote only by Democrats, which means if the Republicans decide they'll all flee the state to avoid that quorum call and a legal requirement that they return to the city, not because it makes it not against the law, but because the police don't have the jurisdiction to bring them back, the Republicans, as they did, can shut down the government. So the question is, Will Democrats end up with a 36, an 18 supermajority, or something less, or something more, or maybe even a historic two-thirds majority? It'd be very hard to pick up two more seats to have a quorum-proof majority. And why? Well, because most of the districts the Democrats can win, a Democrat already holds. And there are other places they could lose seats. House District 32 along the coast, where Tiffany Mitchell didn't seek re-election. And District 52, that's Hood River and the Western Gorge. Anna Williams is a Democrat from Hood River facing a rematch against former Representative Jeff Helfrich, a Republican. Another potential close one is House District 24 in McMinnville. Representative Ron Noble is a Republican. Lynette Shaw is the Democrat. If you go to the Future Pack website, that's the Oregon House Democrats site, they have a list of their featured campaigns, which is a pretty decent indicator of the races they think are close that people should donate to. Cal Mukamoto running in House District 9 in Coos Bay. Jackie Lung, House District 19 in Salem. Lynette Shaw. House District 24 in Carlton. Debbie Booth Schmidt, that's the Astoria seat. That's House District 32. Zach Hudson, Troutdale, House District 49. Ricky Ruiz, House District 50, that's Gresham. And Jason Krupp, that's House District 54 in Bend. The Evergreen Oregon PAC, the Republican PAC, doesn't seem to have a comparable list of their races. But you can still go there to donate to the group itself. And we'll talk about the state Senate races soon. There, the contest for whether Democrats could have a walkout-proof majority is a relevant question. The UVO did see a steep decline in enrollment this fall. After all, total enrollment dropped by about 3%. Freshman class dropped 13%. That's about 15 to $20 million in lost revenue. UVO is doing slightly better than the national average. About a fifth of colleges surveyed reported enrollment declines of 10% or more. This year, UVO tried implementing a guaranteed tuition program, meaning tuition costs would stay the same for five years regardless of budget issues. Kind of like a forever stamp. The Board of Trustees hoped this would entice students who were worried about the financial impact of the coronavirus on the school, and they do think the program saved the school from even greater losses. But for now... No certainties for Oregon's universities. And the progress note, the city is launching a new COVID-19 housing assistance program. The program will provide lower-income Oregonians with $500 in housing assistance. The payments will come in the form of 2,800 prepaid debit cards. They'll be distributed at first-come, first-served basis. Prepaid cards will also be made available to homeless families through the Joint Office of Homeless Services. They're just one-time payments, though. There's only two windows to apply. Here's where they are. The first one is today, October 27th, starting at 9 a.m. The second window, October 30th at 1 p.m. That's Friday. Again, it's first come, first serve, and applications have to be submitted online at pdxassist.com. So if you or someone you know needs help and you're listening to Local in the Morning, you can still have time to apply at 9 a.m. today, October 27th. If you missed the one today on the 27th, the next one will be on Friday at 1 p.m. And I suspect those things are going to fly off the shelves. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. The 2020 general election in Oregon features a ballot measure that promises to decriminalize drugs in Oregon. Up next, we chat with a prominent opponent of this measure, Joshua Marquis. X-Ray's Jefferson Smith talks with the former Clatsop County DA about Measure 110. Not only is the X-Ray fund drive, but a lot of you have your ballots. Some of you have turned them in already. Some people are still voting. And there's a bunch of stuff on the ballot. 
And one of those things says it's about drug treatment, says it's about drug decriminalization. Mark Zuckerberg came, put a bunch of money into it, came out positive. And right now we have one of the leading critics of that measure so that you can decide with full information. We have Josh Marquis, longtime DA from Tillamook County in Astoria, has worked in the legal field for a long time. He is on the air right now to talk to us about his views and some information about that measure. Joshua, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Jefferson, but I was the district attorney of Clatsop County, which is where Clatsop I was. Clatsop County. Sorry, man. Yeah. I shouldn't have guessed. I should have just said Astoria and not made a, mis- yeah. not made a fool of myself. Forgive me. No Tell problem. Me- and and, and I'm... But I want to make really clear, I'm, I'm actually not part of the formal. There is a very small formal campaign. Just to give your listeners an idea of what a uh, David and Goliath fight this is, I was just looking at Orstar, which is the uh, reporting system, and um, there's been about 4 to $5 million spent to pass Measure 110, and there's been $53,000 spent to oppose it. The largest uh, benefactor by far is uh, an outfit out of Washington, D.C. called the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a subsidiary of the Open Society Institute, which is an endeavor of George Soros. The second biggest contributor is Mark Zuckerberg, who is the owner of, or one of the main owners of Facebook. He gave a half a million dollars, and then probably the third biggest contributor um, to the Yes campaign is the Oregon ACLU with about $200,000. Um, now, money's not everything, but we do know that money plays a big role in politics. And if, if your listeners are watching TV or opening their mail, they're going to be seeing a lot of ads trying to convince them that um, Measure 110 is a treatment measure. Uh, and that would be misleading. So how much you say was spent by the has been raised or spent by the pro campaign? The pro campaign shows at least four million dollars as to date. The anti campaign less than sixty thousand dollars. So it's, anybody can look same. that up. Yeah. It's available at the Secretary of State's website. Four million dollars is more than fifty three thousand dollars. You know, don't have to be great arithmetic to get that. <laughs> what in, got in Oregon? I, I know you're from a political family, Aunt Jefferson, and and you know you can't run a statewide campaign of any kind at all for less than usually about half a million bucks these days. And again, money doesn't equal evil, but it does tell you. And and what's important to note is about ninety percent of this money is coming from outside of Oregon to support this. This would, if this law passes, and it very well might, it will be by far the most far-reaching, most radical legalization measure in the entire United States. It will fly in the face of federal laws. And I sincerely hope that Joe Biden is the president, along with a lot of other people come January. But uh, I don't believe it's the pre- this is not the policy of the Democratic Party of the United States. And it will also put the United put Oregon in, in, in violation of a lot of international treaties, because we don't want, for example, the Chinese or the Mexicans or the Indians to send us huge quantities of methamphetamine. And it's very difficult from a foreign policy standpoint to say, well, uh, we want you to cut back on these things, but we are going to just throw the doors open. The main thing I think it's important for your listeners to know is this is being uh, uh, promoted as a treatment measure. Um, in fact, the very name of the group is More Treatment for Better Oregon, Yes on 110. What's important to note is there's not one dime of new money coming 
as a result of this. It, All well, it, just, it redirects the cannabis money? existing funds. Yeah, where does the money come from for the treatment? The it money comes, comes from, from the cannabis two money? places. It comes from marijuana taxes, yeah. which um, were frankly promised to education and some drug treatment and, and a bunch of other places. The problem with the marijuana taxes is they're very unreliable. The marijuana industry had a really bad year, primarily because of the fires. And um, so there's, you know, it's very hard to, to estimate. But in any event, there's X amount guaranteed from there. And the rest basically comes from, again, existing funds like education. One of the myths of this is that we're going to take all the money that we're, we were wasting on prosecutors like me and cops and judges and prisons. That would be terrific, except we weren't spending any money. I can say that in the 25 years I was district attorney, I had exactly zero dedicated lawyers and investigators for drug cases. Oregon has had the most lenient drug laws in the United States, with the possible exception of Vermont, for over 25 years. People don't go to prison for simple possession in Oregon, nor should they. What this will do is they claim it is simply decriminalizing it, and technically that's true. What it does is it, uh, there are felonies, murder, rape, robbery, there are misdemeanors, assault, drunk driving, theft, and then there are infractions, speeding, um, having an expired license plate tag. Uh, the last category are crimes, for, or not crimes, they're offenses. You can't go to jail, you can't be put on probation, you can't be made to go to a class. Um, and then there are grades of each of them, A, B, C, D, E. A is the highest, E is the lowest. They created in this law a new category called a Class E infraction. So possession of 39 tablets of OxyContin, for example, would be a Class E infraction. That means it would be less serious than having mud obscuring your license plate. And let's assume that uh, an officer somehow determines that this person, this is the fifth time after the law passes, the fifth or sixth time they've caught them holding 20 to 30 tablets of OxyContin, which is quite a bit. Doesn't matter. Each one of those, uh, quote, offenses can be punished with no more than a $100 fine. Their license can't be suspended. Uh, they can't be ordered to go to treatment. Um, and what we're going to see as a result, if this passes, is an entire underclass of Oregonians. It frankly won't be generally people from families like yours or mine who probably have access to treatment and have alternative. It's going to be poor people and people of color um, who are simply going to be thrown away, and they're going to end up in an endless cycle of addiction and, and death. And, and unfortunately, uh, substance abuse is a problem that afflicts Virtually everybody. I don't know about your family, but I can tick off at least three of my cousins that uh, suffer from serious substance abuse, one of which at least killed them. And most families in America are like that. So this is not an us and them thing. But this is, this is not, this is a Trojan horse. This, if, if one believes truly that all drugs should be legal, there should be absolutely no uh, law enforcement involvement, and there should be no coercive treatment. Um, then I suppose vote for it. Uh, but most people who've had friends, loved ones, relatives who've had an addiction problem know that unfortunately a very small percentage of them voluntarily go into treatment.
you already started to answer. Maybe it was the full answer to the question I was one of the questions I was going to ask, which is: Don't we ruin too many lives on drug offenses? Don't we spend too much enforcement resource on the war on drugs? You gave a, a key part of that answer already, which is: Hey, maybe we don't actually ruin that many lives right now for simple possession, and maybe that means we aren't spending too many resources. But for all the people who are supporting this, because they say, yeah, this war on drugs has been a big failure, what say you? Um, The war on drugs that Richard Nixon came up with in 1972 has been a big failure, but we haven't been waging that war on drugs in Oregon, at least, almost the entire time I've been a lawyer, and I became a lawyer in 1981. Um, since 1989, it has literally been impossible to go to prison in Oregon, even for your fifth or tenth conviction of simple possession of heroin. Now, on paper, it was a felony. Then we started in the 90s, we started drug courts, which were even better, because what drug courts said was, you, got, you, you get arrested, you have, a, you, you have a conviction looming over you, you go to treatment, we're going to wipe that conviction out. You're going to have no record whatsoever. Um, and a lot of people's lives were saved, not just literally their lives saved. But this idea, there are places in America, and there were times in America when the drug laws were so draconian um, that they did come crashing down and ruin people's lives. Uh, but we don't chop the hands off shoplifters anymore either, nor would I suggest that we should. The fact of the matter is that if you looked in any one of these silos where we're looking for money, say the court system, the prosecution system, the police system, and say how much of that is devoted to drug enforcement now, the answer would be next to zero. So what is 10 or 20 percent of zero? Still zero. Now, currently we have different, as is California, as is Washington, as is Colorado, different marijuana laws than the federal marijuana laws. And so far, federal officials haven't come to weigh in, have not imposed federal penalties for local cannabis shops. That's Meth true. and heroin policy of several administrations. Meth and heroin might be different. What do we <laughs> think happens when uh, this is if this passes, right? If the four million dollars uh, beats the fifty three thousand dollars, <laughs> and the uh, and right now you have uh, meth and heroin that are class E offenses, but you have a president who is you know let's say Joe well either either president either Joe Biden or Donald Trump wins. What, what do you predict or what, do you, what should people be ready for about the potential clash of local versus federal laws? Well, as a practical matter, let me I'll be honest. I mean, I've been a special federal prosecutor. The feds just don't have the time or money to come crashing in or interest in, in busting every two-bit uh, you know, drug abuser, even though it's still a violation of federal law. But there would be a direct conflict between state and federal law. And any time the feds, there's a thing in constitutional law called the Supremacy Clause. The federal law trumps the state law. So anytime Trump is just, you know, coincidence. That's a bummer, right? Um, it, it, yeah, it was a useful verb, in many and now ways. it's confusing. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is that if somebody, for example, was, I mean, look, marijuana is so benign compared to the drugs that we're talking about here. We're talking about um, fentanyl, methamphetamine, heroin. I mean, these drugs destroy lives both directly and indirectly and in very short order. Um, in ways that, you know, marijuana is about as appropriate to, uh, you know, 
uh, uh, to compare it with as a beer would be. Um, and all these substances can be abused. The problem is I've never met a recreational user of heroin or methamphetamine. And unfortunately, in my job, I met many uh, users of methamphetamine and heroin. Disproportionate impact of drug laws are born upon communities of color. When we say, hey, let's just keep it is how it is right now, what is your response to having an unfair system? Well, we never have had a perfect system, and we don't now. Uh, Oregon is, a, is, a, an, a, is an incredibly non-diverse community generally. The African-American community in Oregon is barely 2%. Um, they are overrepresented in the general criminal system, as they are in most of the United States. There is no indication that drug laws are any more particularly so. Um, and, in fact, there... I think it would be some of the statistics being thrown out by the yes on 110 people are just false. Um, if you went and tried to find people of, of color or you know Caucasians who were in prison in Oregon for just possession of drugs, I don't think you'd find any. Now, there's no doubt that if you are on the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum, and minorities tend to be, you're going to probably be over-enforced. For a bunch of reasons, you're not going to have the ability to, you know, your parents won't be able to hire a lawyer, they don't know the judge, they don't go to the country club. These are systemic problems with the system. And the, and the idea, uh, which I think did exist at one point in the United States, that drug laws are targeted at people of color is frankly ludicrous. In fact, it's often uh, leaders, particularly in the black community, that have spoken up, and ironically, back in the 80s in particular, when they saw their communities being really targeted by, in particular, crack cocaine and heroin, uh, because these are communities that don't have the resources. Um, and, and again, the, the purpose of the criminal law is not always to punish. It is often to try to divert people and, and this sounds tough, but it's true, provide a negative incentive. If you provide no negative incentive for blotting out reality and slamming a substance into your arm, um, you know, which group of people is more likely to take advantage of that? People with every possibility who live in Lake Oswego or people who, uh, whether they're black or white, who live lives of quiet desperation and don't think they're ever going to get a job again. And what we're doing really with this measure, I mean, in the long run, is throwing away those people. Because, again, let's talk about what they claim it is. They call it the Drug Abuse and uh, Treatment Act. It's, it's deliberately made to sound like a federal law in 2000, except there is no new treatment. There's only one guarantee that you will get a single evaluation by somebody. Um, that's like these offers you see in, you know, on, on TV is come in and we'll evaluate your hearing for nothing. Yeah, they will, and then they'll uh, you know, offer to sell you a $3,000 hearing aid. I'm not saying the treatment community is trying to make money on it. Quite the contrary. Many people in the treatment community are horrified by this because what it will do is give the veneer that we're offering treatment. But having somebody come in and fill out a 15-point questionnaire, questionnaire asking them, you know, does do drugs interfere with your life? You know, have you, you know, all the, the kind of standard kind of questions that are asked, all that tells somebody is something they probably already know, that they have a drug problem. And then the hard work starts, and it's expensive, and that's where we should be spending the money. Josh Marquis, former prosecutor from Clatsop County, thank you so much for spending your time today. Thanks for sharing your view on the measure with listeners. 
Thank you, Jefferson. Be well. Up next, we have an interview with Debbie Kay, the president of Portland's League of Women Voters. Debbie talks to Jefferson about what got her engaged in the league in the first place and shares what the league's top priorities are this election cycle. Debbie Kay, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. You've been president of League of Women Voters for about a year. You've been a member for a long, long time. What got you engaged in the league? <laughs> it's a, kind of a personal funny story. My oldest friend's mother was very involved with the league uh, in the 70s and 80s. Her name was Leanne McCall. And when I returned to Portland in 1990, having grown up here, came back then uh, with my family and Mrs. McCall said, Debbie, you must join the League of Women Voters. And so having always done what she told me, I joined the League of Women Voters and I'm very grateful because it gave me a marvelous opportunity to learn about my natal community as an adult and meet some extraordinary people, very, very smart, very capable, and very engaged with the uh, workings of our city. And I want to plant something in your brain that I'm going to come back to in a few minutes, but I also want to plant it in Dad's brain that we just had a chance to interview one of the candidates for Secretary of State, the Republican candidate for Secretary of State, Kim Thatcher. And and I know you all don't endorse candidates, so I won't ask uh, that specifically, but I might be interested in your thoughts about what you hope the next, next Secretary of State does. So think about that for a moment. That's a teaser, because what I want to ask, and that's also a teaser for you, because I want to talk about that in a, in a minute, Brig pop in also. But tell us more about Abigail Scott Dunaway, uh, any of that history that people should know or how it connects with your work. Well, thanks. That's a great, fun question. Um, Abigail Scott Dunaway was an, an immigrant from the East. She came over the expanse of this country um, on a wagon train and settled in the Willamette Valley. She had a great many personal challenges that I don't have memorized, and I'm not going to get into them. But um, she felt very, very strongly about women's rights and set about uh, working with people like, um, um, uh, for heaven's sakes, I'll get back to that, uh, to establish the opportunity for women to vote in Oregon. She ran several uh, newspapers, and uh, I know that her husband fell ill. She was the breadwinner for the family. She had a millinery shop for a while, but her life's work was really women's rights and access to the vote. The league, this election cycle, what have been your top priorities? Oh, my goodness. Um, Certainly making sure that uh, everyone who can is registered. Of course, with COVID, that's presented some different challenges. But I've been thinking that the Merriam-Webster word of the year this year should probably be pivot, because everybody has had to pivot and done so um, with a remarkable amount of success. And I'm very proud of the way that we have done that as well. So we have focused um, right now especially on getting our nonpartisan information into the hands of voters. And we do that in so many ways. We do it um, online through our website, lwvpdx.org. On that website, you can find um, a uh, print version of our well-known voter's guide, well-known in part because it is nonpartisan and it will give you the information uh, you need to be uh, an informed and uh, good voter. And we also have a video voter's guide, which is interviews, short interviews individually with candidates running for local positions as well as uh, for Congress. We were focusing especially on East County. And then we have uh, eight debates, four of them on ballot measures and four of them uh, candidates running in runoff elections. 
And we also have a speakers bureau. We provide um, balanced, neutral information, again, nonpartisan, on the ballot measures for organizations. And of course, this year, that's all being done through Zoom. And um, that is available, except for the, the uh, speakers bureau, that's all available on the website, lwvpdx.org. We have said that we, we think that X-Ray has done more candidate interviews than any media organization. Uh, the Good only the only well, I, I think that's true. The only organization I can think of, and maybe in the modern world, there are a lot of things that are media organizations that might have us beat is, in fact, the League of Women Voters, because you have chapters all over the state that are doing what you're doing. Do you know how many video voters guides you guys put out? You all put out? The video voters' guides are done here in the greater Portland area and also um, through, uh, we work with Metro East Community Media and then also the Tualatin Valley folks. Um, that uh, cable organization handles Washington and Clackamas counties. I know that they've done debates in Deschutes County, but I'm not sure uh, how many others do the video voters' guide. And how many candidate interviews have you all done? Do you know Do you know how many of those Let's there are total? See, there were 17 video voters' guides. Um, then the debates were another eight. And that was just for this election. Of course, we did many, many, many more for the primary last May. Well, if any of those you're wanting to be broadcast and get additional air, uh, it wouldn't be my it wouldn't be my decision. But I certainly know the person to be making that decision. If that's something that's interesting to you, uh, that we do are wanting to uh, make sure people have all the voter information that they can get. Uh, let me ask about. We just had a chance to talk to Kim Thatcher. As you are looking at the Secretary of State's race, what do you think? Uh, voters need to have in mind? What are the ways that Secretary of State's work and League of Women Voters' work intersect most importantly? They, is in, in, uh, they intersect most importantly around uh, access to the ballot and access to ballot information. So um, I have applauded Dennis Richardson while he was still with us, of course, for expanding the roles, the voter roles in the state of Oregon. He made it easier for people who might have missed an election or two. Uh, unlike some states where people are kicked off the, the list of eligible voters if they've missed an election or two. A famous example last spring, I believe it was in Ohio, they purged 250,000 voters. One of those was the president of the League of Women Voters of Ohio, who had never missed an election in her life. So that does provide a great deal of concern about how voter lists called roles are purged. So I think that is a primary uh, job of the Secretary of State. And of course, the other primary job with respect to ballots and, and uh, electing is that the safety of the ballot. So I have had the chance to um, visit the Multnomah County Elections Division twice in the last 10 years when they were counting ballots. It is an extraordinary and so secure process. Tim Scott is our elections director. He has spoken um, on a cybersecurity event for the League of Women Voters last fall. My gosh, it's a year ago. And he is absolutely devoted to the security of each and every ballot. It's impressive. I feel wonderful about it. And we are so fortunate in Oregon to have had vote by mail for 20 years. And it was a former Secretary of State, Phil Kiesling, who helped bring that to us. And I'm forever grateful to him and I was one of those people that my children call clipboard people. I was carrying a clipboard to secure 
uh, names on petitions to get us vote by mail, and I'm proud of it. Dad, any reflections on the Secretary of State race or any question for Debbie Kay? Yeah, one one quick question. The when when I was living in the in in Umatilla County, I was aware that the candidate fairs that the league had was were, were one of the most important events in, in the election. But but years but before that, my first experience. Uh, after I moved to Oregon permanently, working was was working for Bob Straub in Bob Straub's campaign in 1966, and he was rather critical of the league because of the rules that it had then about what you could and could not do at one of the fairs. So what what could be done in in the way of wearing insignia and passing out literature and so on. And I wonder, so two questions, what has COVID done to the fairs? And second, what are the rules now as to what candidates can and cannot display or do at the fairs? Uh, well, COVID, of course, has made the fairs non-existent. So, and we in Portland haven't done candidate fairs in many years, certainly not since I've been involved with the league. We have preferred doing forums um, where there's, you know, the people up on the dais answering questions and an audience um, sitting where the audience sits, writing questions on three by five cards that we then present to the candidates. Uh, as for the, the rules about what candidates may and may not wear or bring, uh, in part, that depends on the venue. Um, and But the league wants everything to be as even as possible so that candidates can make their own choices. And that is the reason for those rules that um, restrict the, the button wearing and the flyers and the rest of it. All of that material can be put in a foyer, but not in the room where the fair or the debate or forum is taking place. Well, Debbie Kay, I want to thank you so much for your role in Legal and Voters, one of the most important organ- civil organizations that our town and our country has with such an amazing history and such a critical present. Thank you for being present with us this morning. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun to talk with you both. Thanks to Joshua and Debbie for joining The Local. Thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please and thank you support the X-Ray Fund Drive. Help take X-Ray to the next level and live on to the next generation of leaders. And join us live for a Minority Retort Comedy Showcase. That's Wednesday the 28th at 7 p.m. You can watch it on X-Ray's YouTube channel. Jason Lamb will host it and other comedians of color will bring some laughter to our lives as we trudge through the last week before the election. And another big reminder, today, back in, I mean today is the last day to absolutely guarantee if you mail your ballot, it'll get there in Oregon. But by the way, if you live in Portland, the mail takes less time. But nonetheless, today, you can safely mail it. So today is a great day to mail in your ballot if you want to be absolutely sure.